MPH Sports Podcast. Talk sport and property with sports people discussing their careers and how property played a part in it. Paul Nichols, welcome to Talk Sport and Property. How are you? Yeah, good form, thank you. Yeah, a nice day for a change. I had a little rain the last few days, so it's much better stride up a bit today. I've got to say, up here, it is moody and raining. Uh, it's not ideal for my golf. Uh, Probably good for the horses. We, well, we turn, we sort of turned our best part of 100 out on Monday, you know, for the eight-week summer holidays. And, you know, we've had this long dry weather for about the last six weeks. And it's always the same. The minute you turn the horses out for their summer holidays, it starts raining. So yesterday, they actually looked like drowned rats, but they're actually enjoying themselves. They're all fine. Great stuff. Well, I just want to say this is the finale of our first series for Talkable and Property. And it is honestly an absolute privilege to have you as our 20th guest on the pod. So listen, thank you from all of us here, mate. So in case you haven't listened to the podcast before, Paul, which I don't expect you have, but we're going to be going through two halves of the pod. We're going to talk about your career, ask you some questions in between, and then we're going to discuss property. So we'll make a start if you're ready. Born in Gloucestershire, a former national hunt jockey with a very respectful 133 career wins, 30 years now as a national hunt trainer, an absolutely incredible 3,312 career wins, including 443 graded winners, a grand national winner, four Cheltenham Gold Cups, and you currently stand before me as the National Hunt Champion Trainer, winning again this season for the 12th time. Did you ever think you would be this successful when you applied for your licence back in 1991? No, not at all. You, You obviously set your heart on doing something and I've always been very competitive and trying to do things you know properly yeah just wanted to run a successful business and and train winners so I didn't really have any end goal but to, to look back now and hear what you know you just say all those races and wins and you tend to sort of you know focus when you're working hard you tend to focus on the future rather than look back and you tend to sort of forget how successful you've been really and um it's just been incredible from the day we started here in Ditch it and um no, I never dreamt I'd ever be successful obviously you always want to do well, but um, it's been amazing, really. Well, I want to take you back to life as a child, Paul. When did you fall in love with horses, the sport, and why did you want to become a jockey? It was really my grandfather. Um, Dad was in the police force. My granddad was in the police force. Neither of them had any connection with horses at all, except my granddad, when he was tired, always used to watch. Bet. He used to enjoy a bet, and every Saturday afternoon, you used to watch the ITV7. And I used to go around and watch it with him. And it sort of got me hooked on racing a little bit. And I think it was either grand or somebody one Christmas bought me some Christmas and some riding lessons at the local riding school, which was near Bristol. Dad took me along with some riding lessons. And I remember now riding. I remember it like it was yesterday for enough, a pony called Tiny Tim, he was called. Mm-hmm. I got on it and I managed to fall off about five times in the first hour of riding. And sort of thought, oh, this is wonderful. And, and just got hooked on horses from that moment onwards, but particularly watching the racing with Grandad. I was, I, I, you know, I just was enthralled with the whole racing industry, mostly jump racing, because that's all Grandad really used to watch. So, yeah, I loved it. And I you know, did the normal thing. Then Dad and I got, got some ponies, and, you know, Dad got hooked on the ponies as well. We did all the sort of local things, and Gymkhana's, Pony Club, and God knows what else. And But I, I, I don't know why I just got this fascination with racing. And... Um, Obviously, having no connection with it whatsoever, I, I, I worked out that the only way that I was ever going to get involved in the sport is perhaps by being a participant. So 
I thought, let's give it a go riding. And believe it or not, I was able, I was quite light in those days and tiny. So I was about 16 or 17. And then I sort of took off and you see now I you know, gladly got over my anorexia, which I had in those days. But the only way I was going to get involved in racing was by riding. So I set off on a career as an amateur jockey, trying to get as much experience as I can. I could in racing and it get to know, you know, contacts in one thing because in the back of my mind I don't know why I just had this fascination with training racehorses. You turned conditional in 1982 under the guardianship of Josh Giffords um, before joining David Barons in, in 1985 to become his table jockey in 1986. You experienced some big successes races with David didn't you? Yeah I mean it was um, we, we you know we had a fantastic setup then I, I, as I said, I started off with Josh Gifford and I did quite well there as a conditional, but I, I was always torn and struggling with my weight and I was never going to be able to ride as much as I wanted to. And I, I was looking for another job that might involve riding and being involved in the training side of it. And an opportunity came up with David and Jenny Barons. They just started importing lots of New Zealand horses and wanted someone to help with that and also um, to ride them. So I managed to get that job and you know, had some lovely horses and you know, during that time, you know, won two Hennessy Gold Cups, one on an 86 on Broadheath and 1987 on Play School. And that year, Play School went on to win the Welsh Grand National and also the Irish Gold Cup. So very lucky to ride some really good horses. Another one I rode, I rode five winners on a match. He was a horse called Seagram before I broke my leg. And then Seagram, as you know, went on and won the 91 Grand National. So I was heavily involved in the riding of the balance and also the training side of it as well. Wow. Well, as you said, I mean... It- you decided to, to retire following that, that broken leg in, in, in pre-season back in 1989, and you decided to serve a, a two-year apprenticeship as a, an assistant trainer for David. I mean, how valuable was that experience, and was going on your own always part of the plan? Yeah, I always wanted to set up training on my own, but I mean, I basically, I was a skint jockey and I didn't know how I was going to do it, and I just felt, I'd been with David and Jenny for a while, and it was, a, you know, having broken my leg, it's fairly obvious I wasn't going to ride again. I've got too heavy and um, I, I needed to start to look to do something else. So I spent two years, you know, as as assistant with David and Jenny. And um, it culminated that, you know, with Seagram winning the national in 91, which was a great day. But I soon worked out then. I'd gone as far as I could probably, I'd done as much as I could involve with it set up there. And if I was going to get it going on my own, I needed to find somewhere. I, you know, after Seagram won, I sort of started looking to find somewhere to train. Yeah, well, it was in 1991 when you took out your trainer's license. And when I was doing my research in prep for this, this, uh, this podcast, Paul, it really made me chuckle. You found a, an advert in, the, in Sporting Life where you found a, a stable to rent. How do you financially prepare for such a, a brave decision going out on your own? Because like you said, you were just a, a skin jockey. You wanted to go out and do something on your own because you were ambitious. And, and how were your sort of first few seasons as a, as a trainer? Well, I was incredibly lucky to come across the the, the job and the, the yard that I did owned by Paul Barber, who you know is owned Demon and Seymour Business, and has not just been a yeah, great landlord, but he's a great friend now. So I was so lucky to get that. But the thing was, I had known his brother Richard quite well, and and Richard had marked my car that Paul's looking for somebody to take over the yard that he set up in Ditch because Jim Old was leaving. So I rang Paul up. Came up to see him. I, I basically spent I've been riding. I've saved up ten thousand pounds. I'm going to put everything into the business I can. I'll make this work. And he had several other people. I think he 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 had interviewed that time. And at the time, I think it was twenty boxes in the yard. And he was going to have two decent horses with whoever was successful. So I managed to persuade Paul that I was going to uh, make a go of it. And he obviously 
So something in me that made him choose me to have the have the yard, and that was in you know, thirty years ago. And then um, we started off with eight horses, and the rest is history, really. And um, wow. you know, when you start off like that, you do everything: you ride out, you you muck out, you lead up, you drive the lorry, you you do everything. And any little bit of money you can make, you just reinvest in the business. And remember, Paul did say for the first six months. He, he let me up in any rent just to help me get on my feet, which was, you know, fantastic. And I, I paid him that back when I could. And just lucky, just expanded, got, you know, well, you know, as you said, 3,300 odd winners since. And it's been an amazing story, really. And I've been very, very lucky to drop across the situation in Digit. Paul, it was in 1999, Cheltenham Festival, which saw you break through into jump racing's elite, winning three of the most prestigious steeplechases in national hunt racing, collecting the the Queen Mother Champion Chase, the Arkle Challenge Trophy and the Gold Cup with Seymour Business. That must have been an a incredible festival for you and the, and the team. Oh, it was amazing, really, because, you know, we've been training a few winners, but, you know, on year on year, we were getting better and better. We didn't have any sort of, you know, what I call grade one winners. I think Seymour Indians had won our first grade one at Kempton. But, you know, you want to be training Cheltenham winners. And I think that first eight years without Cheltenham would seem like 80 odd years and, we always trying too hard, and I thought we were going to win at the year in ninety ninety eight with uh, Seymour Business, but he got carried out when he was favourite. So as you said, he won in ninety nine. I can remember that week. Now we, you know, we went into the race into the week thinking oh, we got a few chances on the very first day. Call name, um, sorry, flagship Uberalis won the Arkle, which was my first Cheltenham winner, and that was just amazing. Day. I can remember coming back afterwards. We went into the manor after we had a few drinks. And, started celebrating thought, well we'll enjoy this I know we got channel tomorrow but we're going to enjoy this our first winner then the very next day call Aquanine won the Queen Mother Champion Chase which is God wow what's happening went back to the manor that night had another few and sort of just managed to we've got to not be too late we've got a Gold Cup to compete in tomorrow and then that next day Seymour Business won the Gold Cup so within the week we'd had a win on each day, ending up with winning the Cheltenham Gold Cup. And of course, we went back to the manor that night. I think we were in there for a week celebrating afterwards. And especially, it was very special because my landlord, Paul, one of his ambitions in life was to start with it when he was young, was to win a Cheltenham Gold Cup and milk a thousand cows. So he's done that and the space. I think he's won two Cheltenham Gold Cups and he's looking for his third. And I know he's milking 3,000 cows, so I've got to pull my finger out. <laughs> but that those three days, those three days set us up then. We were then, the phone started ringing and people sort of took notice of us. Yeah, well, your results were improving season upon season. And I just want to sort of read out some of the stats behind that. 1999 to 2000, 64 wins. The following year, 83 wins. 2001 to 2002, 136 wins. 2002 to 2003, 152 wins. I mean, you were beginning to really make a, a name for yourself, Paul. And I found an article, actually. I just want to read this out to you, if I may. It says, and this was with the BBC at the time. It says, Nichols is one of the younger generation of trainers that has a future of a champion. Over the past few seasons, he has built up his stable and now has an operation that could challenge fellow West Country champion trainer, Martin Pipe. Did, did you feel that you were becoming a huge part of the sport's future? I was beginning to think that. I mean, obviously, you know, when you start training good winners in the number of winners we did and building a good string... Yeah, you, you, I saw certainly saw a future, a big future in in the game. I loved it. I loved the success we were having, and you know, we we had Martin Pipe in, in our sights to try and be champion trainer. And as you say, I think we were second to him seven times on the trot, but we eventually cracked it. Now we just won our twelfth trainers championship, so it's been an amazing time, really. You 
have had some of the sport's best jockeys ride for you, Paul. Um, just to name a few, obviously, like Ruby Walsh, AP McCoy, Barry Geraghty, Sam Twiston-Davis, Daryl Jacob, Bryony Frost, and obviously your current stable jockey, Harry Cobden. How much of your success is, is down to jockeys like these guys? When, you know, it's, it's all about teamwork. You know, good people in every part of the business you do, and obviously that includes having a very good jockey because that's the most... You know, when they're out there racing, that's the most important job of all. And you need somebody who, who's a good team player, gets on with the horses, gets on with the staff, and most of all gets on with the owners, but is successful. And putting all those together is not easy, as in any sport. But, you know, yeah, it's a massive part of the game is the jockeys, you know, and getting to know the horses and, and getting to know what they're doing. And Ruby in particular was probably one of, the, in my mind, the best I got on the best with him. We had the best success. It was an amazing jockey and it just, we just clicked, you know, and you, you need to have somebody who's part of the whole team. Yeah. Yeah. I've been very lucky to have some amazing jockeys riding for me. And I think I'm lucky now to have Brian and Harry. They're, you know, both fantastic jockeys. Yeah. You've won many of the major races on multiple occasions, Paul, like the, the Cheltenham Gold Cup, the King George V, the Queen Mother Champion Chase, the World Hurdle, the Arkle, the Tingle Creek. I mean, I, I could I could rattle on for the next sort of ten minutes. But it was in 2012 when you you won the Grand National with Neptune Colonge in in what has to be one of the closest finishes I've ever experienced. I had to watch it again the other day before mm. this pod, and I still couldn't work out if it had it got up. Did you think it had won? And and in a in your opinion, how difficult is it to win the Grand National? Well, it's an amazing race, first of all, and it is an incredibly difficult race to win. I think I'd had 50-odd horses run in the race before we actually hit the jackpot, but Bunny Neptune was probably the best of all the horses we ran in the races. That says something, and you, you need a lot of luck as well. A couple of other times we had leading chances, particularly when you were with Atok, who got brought down in the third last, was going very, very sweetly. But, you know, these things happen. It's, it's a different race. It's a new, unique race. But, you know, Neptune was a horse I actually believed in for a long time. I really thought he could win the national. You know, he had a lot of quality. He had high-class horse. He stayed forever. He jumped well. I mean, he was, he was very clever. And a funny little story I'm going to say before we've gone about the race. I remember the, on the Sunday beforehand, I said to Ruby, look, now, look, what are you going to do? Are you going to ride Neptune or not? Because I need to let Daryl know who we'd lined up. He'd never sat on the horse before. Yeah, but I need to know. And Ruby said, ah, said I, I think I'm not going to. He said, he's too old, too slow and got too much weight. <laughs> and the rest is history. And as it turned out, funny enough, if Ruby had been going to ride him, I could. he may not have even run in the race because two races before the Grand National on that day, he had a bad fall on Zarkanda and broke his arm. And I would not have had time to find a replacement jockey and the owners wouldn't have been keen just to, you know, find anybody. So he probably wouldn't have run. So fate played a big part in it. Ruby decided not to ride him, to ride him. But to win the race was brilliant. And, do you know, I actually thought just going by the line, he got up and won because it just had his ears pricked on the line. He knew he'd won and I thought he'd won the time. But then the camera immediately went on to John Joe and Neil. I thought, gee, perhaps we haven't. And then Ruby came wandering out the way in room, you know, with his arm and his sling or whatever it was at the time. He said, what are you worried about? He said, he won. And um, he was spot on. So when they, I should never forget those words. And the winner is number four, Neptune Colonge. Yeah. Amazing day. I know. I watched it. And honestly, it was incredible. It was incredible. Well, you have trained some of the, the best national hunt horses in, in, in history. Just a few personal favourites of mine. Obviously, the amazing Cato star, Denman, Big Bucks, and also Froden. What does it take to ready and prepare horses like these to go on and achieve what they what they did? 
the fitness is the biggest, I think, the biggest thing in the whole operation. And whatever level of ability the horse has got, you need to get them fit and you've got to get the best out of them. And that goes, like, you know, I've talked to Alex Ferguson about this many times. It's just, you know, with a, it's very similar. You've got a team of players, a team, a team of horses. Also, you're trying to get the best out of those at whatever level of ability they've got. And you sooner identify the good ones and you sooner identify the ordinary ones and you just got to, you know, work with what you've got. But those good horses, they're, they're a class apart and you can always sort of tell. And then it's just managing their career, really, and, and getting them to perform consistently in the level that they can perform at. And fitness and health is the biggest key of all. Some of those, they're all different. They're all different, totally different. I mean, Corto Star, for example, needed half the work Denman needed to get fit because Denman was big, fat and lazy and needed lots and lots of work. Corto was particularly light and fresh and didn't need so much. So it is getting to know them as individuals and getting the best out of them. And I always thought probably Corto Star was at his very best last year. We trained him when he was 12, when he won his fifth King George and his fourth Betford Chase. We'd done different things with him and he was as good as ever. And you just look at Clanders Abo this year. We've just probably got his last two runs when he's nine, are probably the best two runs of his life. We've just got that little bit. And you just tweak that thing, little things. But it's individuality and fitness and health, really. Cool. I just want to ask you about Froden because. What a, what a fantastic amazing horse. Amazing horse. Jumps from the front. I and mean, I've never seen a horse just enjoy mm. that spring. Mm. Briley rides brilliantly, didn't she? Yeah, she gets on really well with him. He's not particularly big, and Brownie's not particularly tall and sits in nicely with him. But he's almost human. He's, he is like, you know, he's like your best mate. He's incredible. He, he, he's, I just went up and saw him up in the field there this morning. He came straight over the gate with his ears pricked and sort of has a chat with you. If he could talk to you, he would. He's, <laughs> he is almost human. He's such a great character, but he knows he's good. And, um, you know, on his day, he gives it all. you never seen I mean, he, he is one horse that you could say absolutely loves what he's doing. He loves his training. He loves his life. And he, most of all, he loves racing. Yeah. His jumping, his enthusiasm and his will to win. It's sand down the last day. He looked beat, didn't he, jump in the last? Yeah. And he got back up on the line. He knew exactly what he'd done. Amazing horse. He is absolutely incredible horse. I want to sort of take you back and talk about, you know, your, your, your setup, Paul. So Manor Farm Stables, Highbridge Yard, Long Hill Lodge. They're all obviously home to your horses in, in Somerset. How many are you training right now? Well, at any, any one time with a number this year, we expand a little bit. We can train 150 horses in full training at any one time in the three yards. The main yard up in the top, I think there's just over 60 boxes. No, sorry, the top there's 82, just over 60 at mine and the rest at Long Hill Lodge. So that's 150 we can have in full training. And then we have satellite yards around about, which Will Biddickids probably has the most horses that, you know, he's bringing on the youngsters and horses are in pre-training. So if we've got one in training in the main yard that's got a problem or needs a break, they'll go out and another one come in. So I think last season, for example, over the whole 12-month period of the season, we ran just about 200 horses. Wow. So you're managing 200 horses, but you probably at any one time got 150 in full training. Wow. And how many staff do you have to, to keep that, that operation well, I asked the girls this morning, actually, because I don't know, them, but I think when we're really flat out in the middle of winter, if you included everybody from the staff that ride out, the girls that work full time, the office staff, Blacksmith Fire Events, probably 60 odd people. So it's a big team. You need plenty. And you are in as good as your team. You need a really good team around you. Mm. I've got to ask, it's been a weird season in front of no fans. How has it been for you? How frustrating has it been for the owners? And what has it been like for the jockeys to have competed, particularly in the, in the, in the larger events that we all watch on ITV? Well, I think for, 
the trainers and the jockeys it's probably been easier than anybody else because the sports carried on as normal you know nothing's really changed you obviously haven't quite got the atmosphere when there's people there the, the frustrating part is for the people the fans that go to watch and the owners who haven't been able to go in the same sort of way you know that is obviously very very frustrating so they've had to adapt and get used to how things were we've all adapted in a lot of ways and it's not been ideal but it's fantastic how racing has kept on the you know the show on the road from the minute minute well, jump race has started on the 1st of July and flat weight's gone all the way through no hiccups at all nobody's been ill and I think the BHA and everybody involved in running racing that's a lot of people deserve a big pat on the back for keeping it going and it's been a big success hopefully we've got lots more fans because it's been a lot of television top class racing on television and and people sometimes have been you know getting you know bright and day up to where they're going to watch a racing of an afternoon it's been tough but it's in a lot of ways, it's been good and we've kept the show on the road and hopefully we can all build on the future. Yeah, very well said. Paul, you have recently won your 12th championship as a National Hunt trainer in the last 15 years. What's next for the Paul Nichols Yard? I should love winning the championship, obviously. I mean, it's going to be a bit of a go. To, we need four more, I think, to beat Martin Pike's record of 15, which is doable, but will be tough because Dan Skelton and a few of them other young lads are snapping on our heels and, and Nicky will have another good year, I'm sure. But one target, I don't think, and I, I can, I'm still to be corrected on this, but I don't think anybody's trained 4,000 National Hunt winners in the UK. So I know Martin trained over 4,000 winners before he retired, but I think obviously there was a lot of flat races in that and one thing or another. So I don't know, but I'd love to train 4,000. That's our next target, 4,000 GB National Hunt winners, which would be great. Fantastic. Well, we're going to now move on to some questions that we've asked some of our followers on social media. Are you ready? Yeah, yeah. Far away. Okay. Interesting. <laughs> I, as you said earlier about Alex Ferguson, I know you train Alex Ferguson's horses. How many does he have with you and how did you guys meet? Well, Jed Mason, who's a great pal of mine, is, is also the sponsor of Morrison International, Jed's company, which he set up with his father. And Jed and Alec had become friends. And Jed had horses with me. And through Alec, through Jed, I got to meet Alec. Um, and then he ended up having horses with Jed and, you know, we snowboard and become friends over the last 15 years. And we, we got on straight away a lot, we got a lot in common in lots of ways. He said that himself. And, you know, because we're winners and that's what we want to do, you know. What in a lot of ways is what he's had to do is a lot the same way as what we have to do. You're trying to, you know, you're trying to produce winners. You've got a team around you and you've got a team to play. But Alec is probably now involved in five or six horses, good horses with Jed Mason. At the moment, I think the best one's obviously Clan Isabeau, uh, Give Me a Copper, Hitman, Mon Morale. And he's got some super, super horses. And we've just, you know, in the press of trying to buy a few more for next season. So he really loves the game. But he loves the involvement with Jed Mason, Paul Barber. And he's got some pals in Manchester they are involved in. And the whole buzz, you know, he really, really enjoys it. I mean, Aintree the other day when I spent the day with him, really, when Clan Isabeau won and Hitman won. Sorry, Hitman got beat. They actually won the race with another run in the race called Protecticat, trained by Dan. And of course, Mon Morale won. So they, 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 Jed and Alec and all his pals had three grade one winners in three races. So imagine he had an amazing day and he loves the game. Yeah, no, I know he does. In 2020, you were appointed a OBE. Firstly, um, congratulations, Paul. Um, and secondly, who did you meet at the Palace? Well, I haven't met anybody at the Palace yet because I haven't been. Because of COVID, I was due to go on May the 13th last year and it got cancelled because of COVID. Oh. So I've got my lovely... OB certificate and you know you know obviously it's all official but haven't been able to go to the you know the ceremony it 
at Buckingham Palace. And I know once everything opens up, there's going to be a big backlog and, you know, things will carry forward. So I'm looking forward to that day. Sure. So COVID did put a tin out on that, as it were. <laughs> Could you name another sport that you were a fan of? Football, obviously. Um, I, I actually enjoy watching it. Um, obviously, I, I used to, funny enough, I used to follow Man United when I was at school. Not that I was that keen into football, but it was just Man United with a team to follow a little bit, really. I had no connection with it. Then I'd sort of lost interest. I was busy. And then since I've met Alec, I've got more and more interested. Yeah, I love watching football now. I really enjoy it. And it must be a real struggle for you to actually go to the games before COVID. Was it, was it a struggle with, with, with work? Yeah, yeah, it is. But I've been uh, lucky to go to Old Trafford to see some wonderful games through Jed and Alec and had, had, had been privileged to go to some great football matches. And, you know, yeah, it's hard to go. But when I seem to be able to go, it's to a good game. So, yeah, I, when I get a chance, I enjoy it. If you wasn't in horse racing, what do you think you would have been doing? Do you know, I, might, I don't really know because I never, ever thought of what else I'd do. I, I was a one track mind. I was going to be involved in racing and that was it. And I never, never even got sidetracked or thought about doing anything else. Whether I'd have joined the police force, like my dad and granddad had done. A lot of people said I used to ride like a policeman when I was riding, which is probably true. But um, I may have gone down that route, but I'd never had, I'd never had a thought to do anything else. Sure. been very lucky. I'm really excited about asking this question. This is my one. I need to know your favourite horse, and I know it's going to be... Yeah. Uh, yeah. What is, can you name a favourite? It's so difficult because, you know, we mentioned some amazing horses already. I'd, I'd have to say Corto style probably, because he was like your mate, you know, he was always... Then going to take your arm off and sort of always box you. He was a sort of, bit of a miserable kid, he was. But Corto was always there looking for you to go and talk to him, give him an apple, or, you know, he, he was a really friendly type. But he was just... He was so good. He was so good at... You know, I think he won 16 grade ones two gold cups, five King Georges, go on and on. And, and it was one season, he was best horse at two miles, two and a half and three miles. Mm. He was just a once in a lifetime superstar. Mm. Well, amazing. All those other horses were great and won the races, and, but he stood out to me. He's, you know, yeah, he's horse of a lifetime. Yeah, I think every racing fan would probably say the same. Your favourite racetrack? Yeah, there's lots of tracks that I'd call my favourites that I like going to. Um, I think Newbury's a great track. Chelm's a great track. Aintree, I love Aintree. Not, not necessarily the Grand National course, just Aintree mm-hmm. itself. But my favourite one is probably Wincanton, for obvious reasons. Local course, not far to go. And I've done very well at Wincanton. The trainer you most fear next season? Well, if you're talking about British Championship, I'd say Dan Skelton. Because um, I think over the next few years, Dan's, you know, they just made Harry champion jockey. And I know now the sights are set on Dan being champion trainer. So he's going to be trying hard. So I'll keep him in his place for a few more years yet with a bit of luck. But he's competitive and he's got the drive and he's got the facilities and the, the scope to be able to, to be champion trainer one day, I've got no doubt. Sure. The race that you could watch again and again and again. Corto's fifth King George. Without you know, that was just amazing race. You know, amazing day for any horse to win five King Georges. I think he ran in six, but to win a fifth King George when he was twelve was like yeah, twilight of his career was amazing. Never forget that. Thank you. If you could go back and change a race, which one would it be, and and why? I think probably it'd be the '98. I think it was Charlton Gold Cup when Seymour Business won the papers. Was travelling extremely well and got carried out. We thought he might have won that day. And he, he won the year after when he was, wasn't that fancied. And I think in 98, the year got carried out by Cyborg. He was probably at his very best. And yeah, you, you know, if you go back, 
you know, would hope that didn't happen again. But, you know, in racing and sport, lots of things happen. They're out of your control. And you'd, mm-hmm. if only this had happened, if that had happened, you know, it, it's a very big word in racing. A horse that you wish you trained but belongs to another yard? It's always, to, you know, there's been some amazing horses that have been rounding about the last... If I was going to choose one now, yeah. and then again in the UK, it'd be Shiskin, because I think he's yeah. a, going to be a superstar two-mile chaser. So we'll be trying to chase him around, trying to beat him next year. So he's got a target on his back, but I think he's a very smart horse. <laughs> the best up-and-coming horse currently at the yard, which we would like to all be aware of? But, you know, we got some super young horses coming on through. A horse is going to go chasing next year. With two two horses, I'm going to give you two at two different distances. Mon Morale, if he goes chasing, he'll be running over two miles. He was leading juvenile hurdles, won five from five, very smart. He'll make a great chaser. And Brave Man's Game is the other end of the scale. Maura Denman's going to go three miles. He's exciting. So that's two really nice novice chasers. Cool. And lastly, and obviously I'm just asking for a friend here, Paul. Mm. If anyone wanted to buy into a horse at your stable, <laughs> How do they go about it? Well, just come and see me, you know, make an appointment, uh, contact me and come and see me. And uh, funny, I had some guys here yesterday who are interested in the horse and show them the facilities, show them what we've got to offer and try and talk them through it, you know, hold their hand, look after them. And you know, they might want a share of a horse to start, a quarter, a half or whatever. You just look after whoever, you know, and try and fit the bill for them and they might want their own horse. But it's, it's easy, it's easy, easy to sort out. Right. Well, I'll have to just uh... write that check out. <laughs> I'll get it out of the safe. Paul, that was fantastic. We can come back and talk property. Thank you. Talk Sport and Property Podcast, sponsored by MPH Sports Property Academy. Download the app today from the App Store or Google Play by typing in MPH Sports, the trusted go-to app for sports people looking to buy or learn about property. Paul, welcome back to the pod. You and I were recently introduced to each other via your niece, Amy, who is our insurance partner at All Sports Insurance. And just for the record, they are absolutely fantastic, been absolutely yeah. first class with our with our buyers. She recently mentioned that her brother, Harry, is actually your assistant trainer. How how long has he been with you? Yeah, Harry, Harry's been my assistant uh, for the last uh, seven years, really. Um, once Dan Scouton left, we had a guy called Tom Jonathan, who's now gone to work for Weatherbiz. And we, Harry was sort of like, and riding and like me he enjoyed his riding I think he was more interested in training and the minute Tom left Harry stepped into his shoes and you know he's learning all the time and yeah he's been assistant now I think this is his seventh year right so he'll be disappearing soon I suspect I'll have to, to um, be careful why I'll teach him JP McMahon has said to me a lovely story of this about Dan Skelton one day he said you learned your lesson there boy he said teach them well but don't teach them everything you know <laughs> and it's true but Harry's been so close to the family he's probably learned every single trick there is he'd he know the job inside out and I'm, I'm sure he'll be training on his own one day Coming back to Property Pool how is the market in, in Somerset at the moment? Well I think it's quite strong actually it's like the same everywhere I mean a ditch where we live in around here there's property on the market and they seem to not be on very long and um, we are 10 minutes from Castle Cave train station so people can commute from our area here, Somerset, Spurty, Digit, Castle, Cary, Alhampton to uh, Paddington very easily. So I think that plays a big part on the prices in the area. It's very strong. Uh, I, I know just, just opposite our yard, funded, someone's just built five new houses. And I was sort of thinking uh, it might be sort of five, six hundred thousand man houses. And they're sort of near 800,000. And I'm told there's a queue for them already. So it's, it's very strong. 
Yeah, it's a real lack of stock at the moment, isn't there? It's just sort of forcing these prices up. Sending yeah. helps as well. I've got to ask, do you own the yards and the, and the land or, or, or do you rent them all? Well, the top yard, uh, which we call the main yard, was 82 boxes, which is hybrid, uh, which is how it says Manor Farm Stables. I rent that off, off the Barber family. And then I broke, and I, where I am at Highbridge House, where we've got 60 boxes and 10 acres, I own that myself. So I rent some off of the Barbers and some of the facilities, and I own some. So it's a bit of a mix, really. Okay. I know when we spoke the other day, you mentioned that you've got a, a few a few properties. When did you first discover an appetite for property investment? Well, I, I really, I think in my younger days when I was riding, my mother and father, dad, you know, suggested, you know, good thing to do is, is try and buy a property. And we lived in a village called Olverston, which is near Bristol. And um, there was a house came on the market two or three doors away from where dad lived. And I bought that kept that rented it out for a few years and just got on the ladder a little bit like that just you know started small and, and built up from there really and it was always good advice and a good thing to do so I'm always telling my young lads that work for me now you know like Lorcan Williams for example Brian Carver you know they're doing okay they've got a few quid Brian is another so, mm. so you know if, if you can don't spawn it go and buy a house even if you don't live in just buy it and get on the ladder and and and, and rent it yeah, I was speaking to Amy about Brian the other day, and she's apparently a bit of a, a crazy cat, and she, she loves her property. So I'm, I'm hoping we can get her on the poddle for the next series, actually. Yeah, well, I know she's got she's got one house in, in Shepton Mount. She's just bought another house that she's going to move into. She's, 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 she's switched on, Brian, and she, she's like well into buying property. So she's on, and she's actually buying one at the moment. Awesome. So what is your typical type of investment pool? Where is your sort of go-to investment, and what sort of returns do you sort of aim for how do you assess the deal well what i've been doing really the properties i've got uh properties tied in with the business so i've got five properties apart from the one i away from the one i live in and they're basically all properties i bought to rent out to staff so they're self-funding really in the fact you know you've, you you fill them with staff you charge a minimal rent but it covers all your costs so the properties you know i always i the business I, the properties i've got are all to tie in with the business because it just works really well Right, I'm I just see. in the you know process of buying another one now. Okay, so is there a, a desire to to maybe buy more in the future, or do you think that maybe your 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 capacity? No, well, uh, I'm I actually buying one off my nephew at the moment, Harry, and it's he, he he's had one as an investment for a couple of years and wanted to sell it. And I said oh, I'll have that off you, and it's already got staff in there, so it's it's you know an ideal thing. But I would I I could easily keep going. I, I enjoy prop. One of the biggest projects I actually had over the last few years, uh, where a Highbridge House, a Highbridge Farm, was an old farmhouse, which I knocked down and I built my own property. It's, I've been in it six years now. It took three years to build. It's a beautiful house. So everything I've earned in, in racing has gone into that house. And that project building that was just, like, amazing. And it got me hooked. And with Pete Dunford, who built this house, and myself, we bought some ground to build a house on. And I've got the bug for it a little bit. And I, you know, if I had more time, I'd like to be, I'd like to be doing some more of it because it, it's it's something away from the racing that you need a little bit. So if I ever had the opportunity to build another house or another project, I'd be straight up for it. Yeah, it sounds like you need a property finder, Paul. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Talk to me. <laughs> well, look, we we agreed 127 sales for sports people last year. Is property a popular subject um, amongst the jockeys. I know you, you mentioned, obviously, a few of the guys are obviously now looking into yeah. it. You've encouraged, but it, it sounds like it obviously comes up more regularly than maybe even I thought. It does. You know, all, all, all the lads, you know, have always tried to push them to buy property and always said if it helps you, if you buy some, we'll try and rent it off you. 
you know, going back, I was just thinking Harry Skelton did the same. He bought a nice house in Shepton, which I rented off him before he moved up to Warwickshire. And I think, I think that, that, that Brian, as I said, Brian, is, she's really switched on on it. I, I assume that they, 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 they must know what's going on. And um, if they're not, they should be. We've been working with the Premier League, the RPA, the PCA, in order to try and provide sort of complementary education to mm. sports people. May I ask what sort of education maybe do, do jockeys get as part of maybe the, the PGA? Well, I'm not sure they get any. So right. I think it'd be interesting avenue to follow. Um, they may well do. I, I don't, but I, I guess I'm not sure too much. So it's, it's worth, and it's definitely, I'm sure that the more help those guys can get, especially the more and more younger people coming into the sport, the better it would be for them. Yeah, I've actually got so a... Work. Yeah, I've actually got a call scheduled now for next week with the head of Good. welfare. Yeah, so she reached out and and it's great actually to see that she's... from the PGA. Yeah, yeah, Good. yeah. So that was that was great actually. So we've got this um, call lined up for Tuesday, and um, she's really enthusiastic to know more of what else she can do to help um, encourage education through through to sort of the jockeys really. And um, because yeah. Good idea. sport, and if we can come in and provide some some free advice, then it will just maybe make. It'll allow them to make better decisions with their money, yeah. really. Yeah. Um, how important is it for elite professionals like like you were to 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 invest in property, but also in in business and in themselves? I mean, clearly you were so driven. You you managed to save ten thousand pounds. You invested it. You speculated to accumulate this mm. huge profile and uh, that that you are and what you have now. In your opinion, how important is it for these sports prof- professionals to, to consider the road that you've gone down? Oh, it's very important. I think, you know, you can't just be focused on a one period of your life, the present. You've got to look to the future. You know, and if you're doing well at a particular time, if you can say for rainy days, it were, you need to. And I think it's very important that you, um, be, you've always got to have one eye on the future. And, you know, you never know with sport with injuries or anything can happen in you need to be looking to do something else so if you're going well you really need to be at the best in what you can and property is a great thing to do mm. do, do you think it's hard for jockeys today to dream of becoming a, a trainer like you i wouldn't want to start all over again um, it's a different thing these days you know with ten thousand pound now it would be impossible I mean, obviously, that would be worth a little bit more money now. But I, I was lucky that I'd been assistant trainer to David and Jenny and trans, uh, just able to smoothly get my trainer's license and go. But there wasn't a lot of advice, funny enough. I, I, I had to, I, everything was common sense. I taught myself. I never, you know, nowadays, actually, they've got all these trainers' modules they have to pass all differently, get taught a lot more. And so from running a business is probably easier. Getting, getting clients and getting successful and getting a, a business up and running, I'm not sure it's as easy now. And, mm. You know, there's a lot of us that do the job well, successful and successful or success. And, you know, for those smaller trainers, you're always going to get some breakthrough. You always will. Dan was very, very lucky. He had huge investment and help from his father and his brother's a big family business. They've done well. But you know, for a lot of people, it's very, very difficult. Yeah. But then that's the same, I suppose, for any sport. To break through into the big time, it's not easy. No, it's not. No, sure. I want to ask as a as a dad, how proud of you are you with Megan, Paul? And did you have any reservations in her becoming a jockey and coming into the sport? Because I mean, she's a fantastic jockey, isn't she? Yes, she's done very well. When she was sixteen, she started off point to pointing and did very well and was riding jumping. And I wasn't sure so how keen I was her carrying on that. So when she told me she was going to ride on the flat, I was a bit disappointed. I was actually secretly quite pleased because I think. You know, it, she's quite 
petite and riding on the flat was more success it was more obvious thing for her to do. So she's done very well on the flat. I mean, it's a tough game for the girls on the flat, and she's got a big job. It's quite hard, and she's mixed in with that. She started doing work for ITV Racing and Racing Sport, a lot of media stuff, and she's doing very well at that, and she enjoys that, and I think she's very good at that, and I think that's where the future lies. And last season, she rode a lot of our bumper horses, which I can see her doing more and more in the future, which is good. So, yeah, very proud of her and very, you know, chuffed that she's done so well. Yeah, and do you ever see her coming into your yard one day and maybe taking over the business at some point in the future? I'm not sure she's, I'm not sure how keen she's on training. Olivia, Olive, who's my middle daughter, she's 15 going on 16. I think she's got a set sight so on perhaps training one day. She's, she's very, and I actually gave her horses, you've got an old guard for her that she's going to ride point to point to next year for her to, you know, to train up, you know, get, prepare and get. Yeah, get some experience in there. And I was always saying, come on, you make sure you're doing plenty of work with it. It's got to be fit when it runs. He'd been off for a while with an injury. And actually, first time it ran for her, it won. So she's doing a good job. She enjoys that. So I could see Olive being involved in the in the training one day. Yeah. Awesome. But you never know. We'll see. Paul, before I let you go and train your 150 horses and manage your 60 team of staff, what does life look like for you during this time of year with with races not being as few and far between and what sort of preparation do you now need to um, put in place to go and acquire your 13th um, national hunt championship well yeah, it's the time of year i will say you know it's, we have several horses on the transfer list so like a football squad so at the end of the season there's a certain amount you need to move on a certain amount i got to top you might think well that's not going to go any further it's a good time for the owner to cash in and reinvest. So you're always managing your squad. So we're, we're busy going to be buying a lot of young horses during the summer. A lot of the main ones have been training are having eight weeks out at grass now. So they basically go out from the middle of May to the middle of July. And so instead of having 150 in, we've probably got 20 summer jumpers in. So a lot of maintenance goes on. Gallops, all the boxes stinkling, disinfected, and everything left ready to start. New term, second Monday in July. Awesome. And then it's... All, all, all go again. So three months to get them ready to be ready to run when the season starts properly again from the middle of October. Yeah, hopefully I can come down and, and, and watch. And um, yeah, anytime you're welcome. But I just want to say personally, Paul, you have been the perfect guest for me to end this fair series with. I mean that. I'm a huge fan of everything that, that you've done. Um, so thank you very much for coming into Sport and Property, mate. I, I sincerely mean that. My pleasure. I look forward to seeing you soon. Yeah, thanks ever so much. Cheers again, Paul. Okay. Come on. Cheers. Thank you. You've been listening to Talk Sport and Property. Visit the App Store and download the MPH Sports app today or keep up with us over on Instagram 